thought about using it for something, but probably won't. Anyway, <clears throat> good to see you this morning, and uh, I'll ask you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 2, Psalm 2. Last week we kind of did an introductory look at the Psalms, and then we looked at Psalm 1. Uh, this morning I want to continue a few introductory remarks and then want to jump into Psalm 2. I think the two of these psalms, they kind of go together in introducing just the whole uh, collection of the psalms. And if you remember uh, some of the things that uh, we mentioned last week, you know, the psalms, of course, there's 150 psalms, and they were individual portions of Scripture. Um, unlike, if you want to say, like chapter and verse divisions in the rest of the Bible, these were individual psalms uh, in, in these. In fact, they're songs, literally. Uh, some have uh, described them as poems, of course, set to music, which that's kind of what songs usually are. But, uh, or really, in a lot of ways, they're prayers. Uh, many of them are uh, definite, specific, personal prayers uh, that are a result of some experience in life, you know. And uh, if we uh, have opportunity and we were to look at more of them, maybe even like next week we'd look at Psalm 3, and you'll see that as a specific example of that. It's a specific psalm. Uh, it's, of course, of David, and it's, uh, it's literally, you know, him crying out to God because of things that were going on in his life. So there's a, there's a lot of benefits uh, to studying the Psalms. Uh, you know, we mentioned last week, really there's, well, um, and I think it was Keturah, if I remember right, that, that got the answer right. I asked the question, what book of the Old Testament is quoted or referenced more than any other in the New Testament? And it is the book of Psalms. Uh, in fact, I don't, I don't have all that information right in front of me here. But uh, I believe at least 120 of the 150 Psalms are referenced in the New Testament. So it's widespread. It's not just like one, you know, like Psalm 23 all the time. Okay, that's, that's probably the most popular Psalm, I would say. Uh, it's not like, you know, all the New Testament looks at Psalm 23, but it's widespread throughout. And so... Which, uh, which also, by the way, helps attest to the fact that it is inspired scripture because the New Testament writers referred to it and looked at it that way. Je <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus himself quotes and re references the Psalms many times. In fact, we, we learn, we can learn a lot about the Messiah, prophetic things about the Messiah, about Christ from the Psalms. Uh, the Lord Jesus often referred to the Psalms when explaining things about what he was doing, who he was, what he was doing, and so on, to either to the, the public or to his uh, apostles specifically. But uh, if you remember, there's uh, some seven um, human writers that are attributed in the headings of the Psalms uh, of these 150, of course, David being by far the vast majority uh, of those, but a lot of them are anonymous. In fact, the first two Psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 2 here, are both uh, anonymous in that they have no uh, human writer 
noted at the beginning. However, as we will see here in just a bit, I believe in Psalm 2, we can know who that is because it's referenced in the New Testament and a particular man is attributed as having penned it. So um, we'll, we'll see that here in just a few, uh, few moments. But of course, these, um, these psalms were, were sung by Israel. In fact, some people have called you know, the book of Psalms the hymn book uh, of, of Israel. In fact, the, uh, the Jews today still use the psalms, they sing the psalms uh, a lot in their synagogues and so on. However, most Orthodox Jews, they avoid the Messianic psalms. Uh, interesting, but uh, uh, they do. Uh, so anyway, a lot of things there uh, that we could probably just keep talking about. When you think about these two psalms, for Psalm 1, remember really just lays out in a general way uh, for all mankind some principles, kind of lays out two ways. There's this way, there's that way. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he referenced, he said, you know, there's, there's a broad way, there's a narrow way, and he made a distinction between the two. Uh, in fact, he said with that broad way, of course, it's broad, it's wide, it's easy, and that's the point. Uh, there's not there's no restrictions, so to speak, on it. And people don't like restrictions, by the way. We're going to see that referenced in Psalm 2 also. Um, but it, it's easy for people, and they just stay on that way. In fact, we were, if you're saved, you were on that way one time as well. But uh, uh, there's that way, but Jesus said it leads to what? To destruction. And we see that exact same thing here in Psalm 1. And then Jesus also referenced the narrow way. Uh, he said, you know, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. It's interesting that to get on the narrow way, you have to go through a gate. And the word straight there doesn't mean, you know, like a straight line, but it means it's restricted. It's difficult in a sense. Um, You hear a lot, uh, many times, about salvation being so simple and so on. All right, now in a way, obviously, there is a simplicity to salvation, but salvation is very difficult for many people because, uh, you know, what it, if you want to say the, the humility and, and so on, and pe people don't like that, all right? People want their way. I mean, that's human nature, and that's, uh, that, that's just the way we are. And uh, this, uh, as we get into Psalm 2, we see that very, very definitely talked about. So you see the, the first Psalm laying out the contrast of the two ways and, and the end of those, the, the blessing versus the destruction. You have Psalm 2, which then picks up. In fact, it's interesting. Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed and ends with the idea of destruction. The word, they shall perish, right? Destruction. Psalm 2 begins with just the opposite, a man on his destructive path, but it ends with the possibility of blessing. And so, and, and Psalm 2 is twice as long as Psalm 1 as far as number of verses, but uh, so there, there's some interesting comparisons between the two uh, psalms here. And, and while many of the psalms are very personal, as I already kind of mentioned about Psalm 3 as an example there, some of the psalms, and in fact, these two here, they're, they're very generic in that they're, they're just, they're, they're kind of a general universal application to these. They're not 
They're not necessarily referring to a specific experience in one's life, although Psalm 2 is also a prophetic psalm, and uh, it's the first messianic psalm, first psalm that talks about the Messiah, and there is a specific thing that it's pointing to, uh, but there's general principles here, I guess, is, is what, we're, uh, what we're saying there. So let's go ahead and do this. We have 12 verses in, um, and I'm trying to count real quick. I can't do two things at once very well, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, why don't we do this? I'll just withhold reading right now, but so if, if Pastor Brinker, if you can start and we can just kind of go around like the normal pattern, and then so after Andy, if you can pick up again, there'll be some that'll read two verses, some will only get one, but let's go ahead and read Psalm 2, and then we'll have a word of prayer and get jump into this psalm then. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in, der in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sword displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are they that put their trust in him. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, this morning, as we look at this portion of your word, we uh, just ask for your help, and we pray that uh, you would uh, help us to... Uh, have good understanding of this and, of course, the truths here as they apply to our lives. And then, Lord, we just pray that you'd have your will and way in our lives as well. And we pray most of all that we would honor you and exalt the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I titled, or whatever that's worth, this psalm, this study, The Big Showdown. Uh, you can clearly see there's something big happening in this psalm, what it's, what it's pointing to. If you think about it in, in history, uh, of course, even in our life, our, our lifetimes, uh, and maybe the way I say that for most of you, that lifetime's not as long as the, the front group here, but, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's been many things, whether it's a, a sporting event, I think for whatever reason, when I, when I thought about this, this is what came to my mind. You remember back in the 70s, the Thrilla of Manila, all right? The big showdown between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Uh, and I mean, I, I can remember Howard Cosell, just, I mean, that was, it was just talked about and talked about and built up. And some of you have no clue what I'm even talking about. But uh, anyway, you know, I mean, the, this is like, this is the, uh, well, here's another one, okay? And Maybe this isn't the best example either, but in, uh, what was it, 1989, when, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, and there was this great big uh, military buildup there, 
and Mr. Hussein was bragging that this was going to be the mother of all wars. He was going to teach, you know, the West a lesson and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it turned out to be not very much of a war at all. But um, anyway, there's things in history that, you know, there's, there's this big, uh, it's looked at as this big thing that's, that's uh, you know, this is the best of this. This is the ultimate showdown, whatever. And in reality, the thing that this psalm, the event that this psalm is, is ultimately looking to is really what you could say the biggest showdown that ever will happen. And it's a showdown, of course, where, where man tries to uh, stand up against God. Now, we'll get to that part in just a minute because in, in the... Uh, generic sense of this psalm, there's a lot of principles here that apply every day to what we see going on all around. And so, the, the, if you want to say the layout of this psalm, I, I, I think there's four clear groupings here, really three verses, three verses, three verses, three verses here. And so, look at these principles. You can see man's, and this is alliterated, but man's destructive vanity in the first three verses. Notice Notice the, uh, the vain thoughts that are talked about here. Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The idea of raging here is the, the heathen, the ungodly, okay? Remember Psalm 1 talked about there's the blessed way, and then there's the way of the ungodly, which is going to lead to destruction. They're going to perish, right? Uh, but here he says, why did the heathen, the ungodly, why are they raging is the idea. It, this is an interesting word. It's like they're, they're just, they're, they're angry, they're, they're plotting, and this is part of the, the idea here. They're scheming, and you can see it says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? It's a useless thing that they're imagining. It's, it's empty. It's, it's vain. It can come to nothing is the idea, uh, the ki- and this is what it is. That's the question. It's answered in verses 2 and 3 here. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Do you notice the wording of that? And how, again, this is, this is referring, and we'll get to this in just a second, a specific event yet to happen, but yet at the same time, this is describing the attitude that that natural man has all the time. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody will, you know, they, they purposefully, uh, you know, shake their fist in God's face and, and so on. Most people don't do that. Uh, it reminds me back uh, a lot of, a number of years ago, there was a, an infamous, I'll call him that, atheist by the name of Robert Ingersoll. Maybe you all remember hearing that name, but he used to publicly challenge God. That's what he was known for. He'd, he'd you know, go around speak in cities and blaspheme and try to you know, prove there wasn't a God and all this. And he, would, he was known for, he would, he would like go outside and he would stand and you know, shake his fist and look up to the sky and say, God, if you're there, if you exist, strike me down dead right now. And of course, God didn't. And uh, then he would turn to the people, you know, anybody who was paying him attention, and he would say, see, God doesn't exist. If he, w- if he did, he would have struck me dead, okay? 
Now, obviously, the only, he only proved a couple things. One was his own stupidity and foolishness, but then secondly, he proved the Bible because the Bible says God's long-suffering and God's not going to be, you know, God's not going to be put on a leash by some fool such as Mr. Ingersoll or anybody else. God has a plan, and God's plan will work out just exactly as God has uh, planned here. And so when, when you think of this, this principle here, all right, that, that people are, are rebelling against God, all right, uh, we see that all around us, don't we? And uh, there's, again, there's a general application to this, I think, in the sense that this describes man's natural attitude toward God since Adam sinned in the garden. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the natural feelings in our human nature. Again, nobody likes to be told what to do. And uh, by the way, you know, like you think of evolution and so on. Evolution is not science. It's, it's talked about like that. It's a religion is really what it is. It's, it's a philosophy. And, and I mean, I, I don't have it with me, but it, it was probably referred to some in, in maybe some of the apologetics material that was covered uh, previously. But I mean, there are quotes by... Uh, famous evolutionists and, and so on who readily admit there's no proof for evolution, but they can't entertain the opposite. They won't. You know, it, it's like, okay, we're grasping at everything we can just, to, just so we have something to console ourselves in the decisions that we've made. I mean, that's really what it, what it amounts to. Uh, but it's, it's, it's vanity. It's, it's vain, empty imaginations. Um, and then somebody would say, well, can you prove creation? No, you can't prove creation because you can't recreate, all right? You have to look at the evidence that's here, and, and none of us were there to see it happen, all right? We have a personal record of what took place in the Bible. And by the way, God is up front with man and tells us that, yes, ultimately what it comes down to is you have to trust him. You have to believe him. God says that, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, God demand, could God have done things in such a way that there would be absolutely no way that anybody could ever imagine anything against him or whatever? Yes, he could have, but that's not what he did, and he demands that we trust him that we take him at his word. That's really, you know, what, what faith is. And so uh, this, this is, in a general way, it's describing, again, the, the natural thoughts that, to some extent, everybody has. Again, I'm not saying that every unsaved person says, I know God's there, but I'm not going to listen to him. Not everybody does that, okay? But the fact is, when we uh, follow wrong thinking to some degree or another, it's that way because we're not taking God at his word and specifically following him and listening to him. And so there is this, this general application. Now, um, let's do this. Let's go over the New Testament. I want to read several verses here. Go to the book of Acts, if you would. Hold your place in Psalms. Of course, we'll be right back there. And then in Acts, we might look at a couple different references there as well. But in Acts chapter 4, this psalm is referenced here. 
And, and you can see what I'm talking about as far as a general application of this psalm here uh, as well. In Acts chapter 4, this is following on the heels of in chapter 3 where Peter and John had gone up to the temple and there was a lame man and, uh, he, you know, the Lord healed him there. Um, and there was a whole lot of things that happened because of that, got a lot of attention. A lot of people listened to the gospel, listened to Peter and John preach and so on. A lot of people got saved, apparently. And it also got the attention of the Jewish leaders. And that this is really where you see the persecution starting in, in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were arrested because of that. And uh, pretty much the only thing that happened to them, they were arrested, threatened, and so on, and told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, uh, and so on. And then anyway, in verse 23, this picks up on after they're released, okay? It says, in being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that, all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they, in other words, the church heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord... Thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David, notice that, hath said, now notice the quote, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain things, or, and imagine vain things, all right? It's not an exact quote, but you see here, whoever, whoever's saying this, whether it's Peter, John, or they're attributing this to... David as being the writer. He's not, quote, he's not attributed in the psalm itself, but here the New Testament attributes this to David. But notice then verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. All right? Again, uh, not word for word from English to English here in that, but you see they're quoting from Psalm 2 here. All right? And then they're, they're applying this principle in the setting of, okay, they had been preaching Christ, they were arrested, threatened not to preach Christ anymore, and so on, by the Jewish leadership, and, and they're referencing this psalm as, okay, these Jewish leaders are rising up against God saying, no, we're not going to have that, all right? So, that's, uh, that's kind of what you would, you would say a general application of this psalm. In other words, anytime people are resisting God, really they're fulfilling Psalm 2. All right? Now, there is, and I'll get there in a minute, there is an ultimate fulfillment of this, which this is Psalm 2 is prophetically talking about, that is yet to happen. And everything that's happening between now and then is just continuing to uh, fulfill this. But you might... Uh, might be useful if you hold your place in Acts. We'll get back probably to Acts here in just a few moments. But uh, in, in looking at this again, let me just mention a few things here. Again, you see this, okay, this from Adam's sin on, you see this is the attitude of man. He doesn't want God to rule over him. In fact, notice in the psalm again, verse 2, and three, particularly, all right, says the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. All right, notice the, the wording there of what these people are saying. 
They're saying, we're not going to let God and his anointed, so who's that? Christ, okay, it's, it's the Messiah, literally the word anointed is Messiah here. Um, so these people are saying, we're not going to let God or Christ control us. They're, gonna, they're saying, we're going to cast away his, his band, break his bands, cast away his cords. Bands would be like in the sense of shackles, all right? Uh, cords would be like ropes, you know. In other words, what they're saying is, we're not going to let him tie us down. We're not going to let him hold us, all right, which is the idea. Again, we're not going to listen to God, all right. We're, you know, we don't care what he says. We're not going to do that. Now, the audacity of these people specifically is they know full well who they're talking about and what they're saying. Not everybody necessarily in the world is to that extent, again, but these in this psalm specifically are. In fact, in a way, this just describes, again, man's nature. I mean, from, from Genesis 3 on, you think about Cain, all right? Cain was warned of God, and Cain still, he, he just pushed God away and did what he wanted to do, right? Nimrod in the, the post-flood world, of course, all that took place up through Noah's day and the flood and just the, the wickedness of man. I mean, Israel's numerous examples throughout the Old Testament. Israel knew they had opportunity to know right, and then they just did their own thing, right? I mean, again, it's just, it's just over and over again. In Romans uh, 1, uh, would somebody turn to Romans 1 and read verses, uh, say, 18 through 21 there, if you would. All right, John. <laughs> that they are without excuse, because that when they, knew, when they knew God, they glorified Him, not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. All right, similar idea that you see there, all right? Uh, and, and really, that's in a way, that's describing just generally the downward spiral, spiral if you want to say, of, of humanity. From Adam's sin on, and you know, kind of the snowball effect, just getting worse and worse. But in that passage as well, it clearly says that God has made Himself available, and people can know Him. But basically, they come up with things. In fact, the idea of imaginations in their hearts, their foolish heart was darkened, and so on. And and uh, people make up what they want to believe about God, and they follow that. And they reject what God says about himself. But this demonstrates a, a downward destructive path that ends with tragic destruction. Uh, you know, one, one wrong choice leads to another without intervention. And, of course, our, you know, one's choices always have consequences. And man's vain imaginations are always deceptive, Jeremiah 17, 9. They're always destructive, the passage there in, in Romans uh, in that. But... 
the specific application of the psalm. Let's, let's jump there, and I know we're still only in the first part of it here. But uh, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So the kings, the, those that are humanly in control on the earth, all right, the leaders on the earth at the particular time that this is talking about, they're, they're taking counsel together. They're, they're getting together and, and talking about this and making plans is the idea. They're plotting against, but the thing is, who are they plotting against? They're plotting against God. And they're plotting against God and His Christ, and they're saying, we are not going to let Him rule over us. This is, when you think of this, and particularly the specifics of this as what this is pointing to, it is, to me, it's amazing to think about that people, literally, because the way this is worded, these people that are doing this, saying this, they understand that they are opposing God. They understand that they are opposing Christ. I mean, it's not just they're deceived and don't know what they're doing. They're deceived, of course. Their deception is that they think they can pull this off. They literally think they're going to resist God knowingly and get away with it. I mean, that's amazing to think of. So what is this specifically referring to? This is referring to uh, what most people would call the, the Battle of Armageddon. All right, This is the, the, the big showdown right before the second coming of Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation time where uh, the Antichrist and, and the false prophet and all the leaders of the earth, they literally, they literally physically come to a place and they set themselves like they're going to do battle with God. Now, why do they go there? Well, because they know enough to know that the Bible says that Christ is going to return there. And so they're going there to make sure he doesn't. I mean, think about this. Think, I mean, to me, it's like the audacity of vain, proud man to think, and this is where, I mean, think about it now. Uh, when, 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 when Grace was, was uh, in the hospital at UC, at University of Cincinnati Medical Center, there's signs all over the place. Science did that. I mean, stuff like that is talking about, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the improvements, the, the, the steps, the strides that have been accomplished in, you know, heart surgeries and things of that. And sure, it's come a long way from what it was, but it's science did that. I mean, that's, that's the phrase that's used all over the place. Like, okay, well, what is science, you know? The word science means knowledge. But I mean, what, what, what is it, you know? It's like it's this idea that can do whatever it wants, you know? And... Uh, uh, but, but people are literally going to be at the point where they knowingly, they're going to gather together and stand there ready to try to oppose God from coming and taking His place on this earth. That's how, number one, how you know, dumb, deluded, deceived they are in their minds because they, they know what they're doing but they think they can pull it off, or somebody's talked them into thinking they can pull it off, right? Uh, it, look, go, uh, go to the book of Revelation for just a second, 
book of Revelation. If you look at chapter 6 in the book of Revelation, it talks about seven seals here being opened. Anyway, this is basically the flow of the, excuse me, of the tribulation time is seen in these judgments, these series of judgments that are unleashed on the earth here. But in the, where it says in verse 9, uh, Revelation 6 verse 9, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, uh, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? All right, this is still timing-wise, I would say, in the first half of the tribulation time, all right? Um, and there's been a lot of people martyred, all right, at this point, and their prayer is to God, you know, how long are you going to wait till you avenge our blood, you know, till you carry out your judgment on this earth, right? Now, you get down, uh, verse 12 says, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, uh, there was a great earthquake. This is basically about the middle point of the tribulation time now. Um, and then, but, but notice down in verse 15, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and chief captains and mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the mountain, or excuse me, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? Now, a couple things here. This is not yet to the point what Psalm 2 is saying, but still notice that these people are in a predicament where they're, they're, they know the wrath of God is going to fall, and yet they're not, they're not repentant. Instead, they're just like, okay, hide and let, you know, protect us from his wrath. All right, but they know wrath is coming. And then this wrath is really unleashed, all right, in the next series of judgments, those trumpet judgments and so on. But you see this here. And then in chapter 13 of Revelation is where you have the Antichrist being described here and where he... He basically declares himself to be God and says, you can't worship anything but me and, and so on and so on here. And I'm getting to a point here with this. Trying to, trying to, if you hold your place there, I'm going to read a few verses out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 real quick. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you have that described in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, let me find my verses here. Um, verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling way first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or to his worship, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. All right, again, that's the Antichrist and the middle point of the tribulation, where he basically, he breaks the covenant with Israel, and he... Uh, he sets himself in the temple as God and you know, says, you can't worship anything but me, uh, and so on. He said, and then Paul says, remember, remember ye not that when I was with you, yet with you, I told you these things. 
And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. That wicked there is the Antichrist, right? The Lord's going to um, consume him with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the, him with the brightness of his coming. So that the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation is when he's going to destroy him, all right? We have that described for us in the book of Revelation, but I'm trying to get to something here. Um, verse 9, even him who's coming, this is describing the Antichrist, is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Notice that description. There's going to be a lot of there's a lot of things right now that, you know, in our day, in, in the broad spectrum of what's called Christianity, there's a lot of emphasis on miracles and, and things of that, you know, the su supernatural things and that. Now, and, and people make it sound as if the normal thing is always, you know, all these miracles. You realize in the, in the, in the scope of Bible history, miracles only happened, like we're talking about, that's kind of mirror, in just several short windows of time. Moses, all right, uh, and then of course uh, some in, and, and there's reasons for these in each of these applications, but Elijah and Elisha, and then really not again until the Lord Jesus, the apostles, and, and each one, each of those times are for specific reasons and so on, but you realize that in the scope of what the Bible talks about, the next time that miracles will be present will be in the tribulation time, the Antichrist. I mean, he's going to have some power to do things, and it's going to deceive people. That's the point. They're, you know, they're going to believe uh, his lie uh, and so on. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, I stopped reading there at verse 9, but... Uh, his, his coming, the Antichrist coming, is going to be after the working of Satan. So Satan's going to be behind it, right? With all power and signs, that signs is miracles, right? And lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. So in the unsaved, right? Um, they're going to be deceived. That's the point. Now, I'll, I'll just stop reading for there for now. Uh, there's a specific thing in there that I'd like to say, but we don't have time. Um, but what I'm getting at is building up to this event, the, you know, at the end of the tribulation, the, the second coming of Christ, when men on this earth are going to set themselves and say, we are not going to let God rule over us. I mean, again, when you think about that, what, a, what, a, what an imagination, right? But we're not going to let that happen is what they're saying. But they're deceived, okay? And they've, they've chosen a course that leads to deception and destruction, okay? It's not that they didn't have any other opportunity or any choice, because we see even in Revelation 6, still sometime before that event, people realize they're wrong, they realize that God's wrath will fall, but instead of repenting and, and putting themselves at His mercy, they just say, okay, just be easy on us, so to speak, you know, let's, let's hide and, and so on. And they, they, they talk about the wrath of the Lamb in, in verse 3, I still think that's an interesting you know, when you think of a lamb, you don't think of wrath, but of course we're talking about the Lamb of God here. Um, but, and then in chapter 16 of Revelation, go ahead and jump there. Uh, in Revelation chapter 16, 
Verse 12 through 16, you have the description of the sixth vile judgment. Again, maybe I'm, I'm throwing a lot of things out here that's making it confusing with these different judgments here, but these are all things that will take place during the tribulation time. But here it says uh, that the result, okay, of the sixth vile, this judgment, is that people are going to gather themselves, look at verse 16, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, all right? And this is where you, the name, the, the battle of Armageddon comes from. This is right at the end of the tribulation time. People are gathering here, and then in, in the, the uh, chapters uh, six, uh, 17 and 18, you have the, uh, a parenthetical section here in Revelation that's describing God's judgment on Babylon. Not going to get into all that right now. But then chapter 19, all right, this is where I wanted to get to. Chapter 19, you have a scene in heaven, uh, marriage of the Lamb and so on. But then um, verse 11, all right, this is the literal second coming of Christ to the earth at the end of the tribulation time, all right. Uh, and I saw verse 11, Re Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, probably saved people are included in that there, and out of his mouth, notice verse 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now stop reading there. You remember in Acts 4 when we read that uh, allusion there back to, uh, that reference back to Psalm 2, it talked about how that he would destroy them with his with his word, all right? I mean, you have these people that are gathered, literally saying, we're not going to let him rule over us. Because they're, again, they're deceived. They're, they followed the natural course of their sin to its, to its ultimate end, all right? Which is knowingly rebelling against God openly. And uh, we're not going to let him rule, but Christ comes back to this earth and... He just speaks, and the battle's done. I mean, it's not a fight. This is far more lopsided than, you know, the, uh, the liberation of Kuwait. <laughs> this is nothing, you know. There's armies following Christ from heaven, but they don't do anything but watch. Uh, you know, it, he just speaks, and out of his mouth goes a sword that destroys them. I mean, this is... Uh, this is amazing that people can think that they can get away with this. Uh, but again, it's because they're deceived. Now, back to Psalm 2, and we'll hurry walking through this here. But that's, this is literally what this psalm is talking about. Man's ultimate rebellion against God. It is, it's going to happen like that one day. People are literally going to gather together and say, we're not going to let God rule over us. Let's, let's put everything together. Let's put all our re armies, our resources together, all of our weapons, and let's get ready. And when he comes back, let's don't let him take over. I mean, that's, 
really what they're saying. It's, it, it's amazing to me. All right, now verse 4, right? You have all this described in those first three verses, and then verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Think about this for a second. Right now, man is free, if you want to say, to do his own thing, or he can listen to God, right? Submit himself to God. Now, unfortunately, most people don't do the, the latter. But what's God's response to all that? You think about the man I, I referenced earlier, Robert Ingersoll, that atheist, you know, shaking his fist at the sky and hollering, you know, to God and threatening God and all this kind of stuff. I mean, God, he's just, he's, it's as if he's standing there saying, come to me and I'll, I'll welcome you, I'll take you. But people don't, right? But there's coming a day when, if you want to say, the door of opera, just like the ark in Noah's day, there was a day, I mean, for 120 years, Second Peter says that Noah preached righteousness and warned people of judgment. That's a long time. While the ark was preparing, I mean, that, he was preaching. And telling people, warning them. And that door, once it was built enough that there was a door there, right? It stood open. It stood open. Do you realize that when Noah and his family went on the ark, anybody could have went on with them? Until God shut the door. Noah didn't shut the door. God shut the door. Once that door was shut, no one was going to open it. There was, a, there was a time, okay, when the, if you want to say, the long-suffering, the grace ran out. God warned and warned and warned. He made the way for the escape. But man resisted, rejected, and perished because of it. There's coming, you know, right now, God extends mercy. His grace is sufficient, abundant. And we talked about this, I think, when we were studying Philemon some weeks back. I mean... The sufficiency of what Christ did in shedding his blood and offering himself up and so on. The sufficiency of all that is so it's sufficient enough that everyone could be saved. The, the, the sins of everyone cumulatively can still be covered in, in the blood of Christ. But most people reject it. And, you know, I mean, even Jesus said, referenced, he said, few in, in that Sermon on the Mount. He said, talking about that narrow gate and straight, uh, straight gate and narrow way, he said, few there be that find it. Now, that's a relative term, okay? There's not a quantitative amount to that, but few there be. In other words, most people will reject it. But there's coming a time when God says, okay, enough's enough. That's it. His, his mercy has been extended, his grace is there, but there's coming a time when he's going to say, okay, you're going to get what you deserve. Now, thankfully, we don't get what we deserve if, if we're saved, all right? We get what Christ paid for for us. 
And, but verse 4, I mean, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. I mean, it's like God's just going to sit back and he's finally going to say, okay. And he just has a good chuckle because it's ridiculous what man is trying to do. And the Lord shall have them in derision. The word, you know, to deride somebody, that means to mock them, to scorn them. God's going to hold people in derision. I mean, that, that seems kind of weird to think about, but it's God, He's going to mock man. You think you can stand against me? I mean, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. You see here His response to this. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Revelation 19. Remember, the, the, uh, there's a sword that comes out of his mouth. He speaks the word, and the battle's over. Right? Um, verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's like the decree of God the Father here. I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Then verse 7, uh, verses 7, 8, and 9, you see... Uh, these are focusing on the Messiah here, because remember earlier it said, um, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, rulers take counsel against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against His anointed, against His Messiah. So delineating Jehovah and Messiah here. So, um, and, and Jehovah, the Lord says, I'm going to set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is, again, reference to uh, the Lord Jesus coming back, and he assumes the throne of David. Um, lost my place. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. This is now the Messiah speaking. You'll notice that in, Psalm, in, in the Psalms a lot. There's different speakers in the Psalms going back and forth and so on. Sometimes, like if it's a prayer, you, you see the, 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 whoever the psalm is praying, and then you'll see the Lord's response oftentimes in that. Uh, but here it's, it's now you have, you have the people saying this, and then you have God saying this is what's going to happen, and then now the Messiah, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me. In other words, I'm going to declare this is what God decreed to happen. This is what he promised to me. What God the Father, if you want to say, promised to God the Son. All right? He says, yet I... Um, Lost my place again. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. This is talking about him ruling over the earth now. All right? And then verse uh, 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And uh, we, we saw some references to that there. <clears throat> I think it was in the book of Revelation. All right? And then... So you have, you have uh, Messiah's victory here, and then the, the last three verses are basically a closing plea by, by God again, and even the psalmist here, to mankind. In other words, this is talking about a future thing. This will happen if you persist down that road, but it doesn't have to because you still have opportunity is the idea. Look at verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, ye kings. In other words, to these people that think they can oppose God, don't. Have some wisdom. Listen to wisdom. Listen to wise counsel, right? Be wise now, therefore, ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges, judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. Well, a lot maybe could be said there about the fear and the trembling and so on because of who we're talking about. This is the, the true judge of the universe here, right? But anyway, notice verse 12. What's the answer to that? And, and again, this is interesting that this is an Old Testament passage that specifies the way to be right with God is through the Son. Notice he says, kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Again, this is kind of a, a closing opportunity. It's a you know, man's golden opportunity, if you want to say here, to avoid the tragic consequences that he's headed toward without God when, as he persists in his sin. Instead, you can be right with God, but it's only going to be through submitting to his son. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe the picture, kiss the son, is the idea you've seen uh, allusions to, you know, kings on a throne, somebody approaching, and, you know, they hold out the finger and they kiss the ring or whatever. Uh, interesting. I think the popes and stuff do that too, don't they? <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, uh, you, you, I mean, this is an amazing psalm to me. I, 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 this, this is uh, just interesting when you think about all that's talked about here. It's warning of the ultimate battle, right, the ultimate showdown that man's going to have with God. But, of course, man's the loser. But there's still, still, because it hasn't happened yet, there's still opportunity. And that's, it's, it's amazing to me that even when God, he, he is sure and purposeful and forceful in pronouncing his judgment, but even in those statements, he still offers mercy, still offers hope and and. You know, because it's not too late. Again, 120 years, the door of opportunity on the ark was open. And, you know, uh, there's so much evidence that the ark was so much bigger than what it needed to be for what was on it when, when the flood happened. Well, why? Well, I think God was, again, as a picture of salvation, he was going over and above what he knew would be on there because he was offering everybody opportunity to get on there. And with Christ, his blood is overabounding sufficient for everybody. And God wants to save all men. He's not willing that any should perish. I mean, he doesn't want people to perish, but he's given them opportunity. He wants people to come to him in repentance. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just again this look at your word and help us now. Uh, in this next hour, as we uh, interact with your word, we pray that you would uh, work in each of our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.